0: Welcome to the Common Good podcast, where change agents in social sectors, business, community, and faith meet at the intersection of belonging, imagination, and gifts. I'm your host, Troy Bronson from The Hive in Cincinnati, Ohio. And this is our second season where we build on the relationships of Peter Block, Walter Brueggemann, and John McKnight and their work as it's now expanded into a fellowship program. 12 weeks where fellows from around the world are combined together to work on their own experiment of imagination. We met several weeks ago in Cincinnati for the first time and are preparing now for our second time for those fellows to come together. And this season we'll be talking to a number of folks in their various contexts, the ways that they interact with this work. Today's conversation is with Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp. Miriam has an old friendship with Peter Block as well as with Walter and John and she's been part of the host cohort who helped call together this uh, work of the common good.
1: We absolutely need promised land and we also absolutely need the courage of wilderness but we sometimes just need like the sustenance of the moment in the journey on the way to wilderness. And so we, I think we jump a lot from slavery to wilderness to promised land without thinking about what that walk was like. And that the fact is if we're always in Egypt, we're also always on the walk and we're always in the water and we're always in promised land and we're always in all these different facets. And uh, who are the allies in that particular journey?
0: We had a fantastic conversation together, and regardless of your faith background, I think you'll find a lot of insight in the way that organizers and leaders work with communities in their narratives of scarcity, and their narratives of abundance, and the ways that uh, communities have to extend an invitation to come as you are, and yet all the things that are entailed in that work. The conversation picks up as Miriam reflects on her own history with Peter Block.
1: The first time I met Actually, I don't remember how we connected the first time, but about I've been here about eight years in Cincinnati, and I was struggling with something in my congregation. I was new to the job, never been to the Midwest before, and I heard that there was this Jew in town who did really good organizing work, and he said, sure, Miriam, I'll help you with this, and he came, and he led our first part of our listening campaign, which now has been an annual event that we do 10 times a year every year for the last eight years. So he imprinted on me pretty early in the beginning of that relationship and since it's flourished into a friendship and a deep connection.
0: When you talk about abundance and scarcity and the work of uh, congregational transformation, how has this overall question about community and agency and that sense of abundance of affect the way you, you think about congregational transformation?
1: I think the way that it affected me most was it made me rethink why I was doing any of it in the first place. When Jews become clergy, when we become rabbis, it's not a call, it's a job. Hmm. We go to seminary, and which is really grad school, and we take the GRE and the psychic exams, and I have monumental student loans, and then I do a really good job at questioning and scholarship. But delving into the place for divine spirit or for a call or connecting to my why is something we really have to struggle for, Mm. something that's not really nurtured. So I would think of that as abundance in its own right. So doing that on an organizational level was really against my personal nature and against the institutional nature of congregation. So when I came to my congregation, we were failing by all the standard measures of scarcity, Mm. Uh, low membership, crappy building that was falling apart. Like there was a raccoon that could get through our foundational cracks. (laughs) Like it wasn't like, oh, it's falling. No, it was like falling apart. And they're like, it's so beautiful. Um, And then there was no money, like like no endowments. We only had enough money for about a year and a
0: half left. Just for context, how do Jewish congregations... That is giving work and that sort of stuff.
1: Sure. So the way that we usually make our money or sustain ourselves Mm -hmm. are 75% of all the money tends to come from congregational dues. So you pay an annual due sort of like you would for any other membership organization. And when you don't pay it, you get an invoice and a reminder. You might even get a collections kind of notice. And then if you do not pay it, you get kicked out. That's the way that American Jewish congregations work for the most part
0: have you ever had to kick somebody out
1: <laughs> oh yeah mm-hmm.
0: what's that conversation look like
1: well the rabbi is not part of that conversation uh, and okay. if you can't hear it i'm being very cheeky about it that yeah, yeah. there's um a strong confidence with uh, the rabbi's ability to manage budget to fundraise these things but when it comes to that part of the work we were separated from it and we were protected from it so i never knew how much anyone paid mm-hmm. i never knew if they didn't pay And um, I was finding that it was happening a lot. And that's not just true of my. It wasn't like my congregation was weird and messed up. It was Mm -hmm. like, that's just what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't see this problematic. We cannot collect money on the Sabbath. So I always feel envious of the Christians because you can move me and then you pass a plate. And I'm like, that was interesting, and meaningful. For us, it's like you move you and then two days later you get an email saying, hey, want to give? You're like, no, I was moved two days ago.
0: Uh, Not interested now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how does how does that giving play a role then in agency with leadership in the congregation? And I'm leading to this because I know that you did a, a, a kind of a shift, but I want yeah. to, to create a little. Context. So I would,
1: so, so the way we shifted was first a shift why we need why we mattered at all. Mm-hmm. Why why are we unique? Why are we special? And the, and what we found in the beginning is we weren't special or unique. And I was like, you guys, bad news. There's nothing interesting about us. We should just merge. Or we should change, and if we're gonna change, then we need to rediscover our why. And so there was a lot of organizational change that happened in order to make the economic change. Mm-hmm. And I say that, so we had to be healthy in spirit. Um, not saying that we had to all believe in the same kinds of things, but just to believe in ourselves, to know what was unique and great and weird and beautiful about us, and um, to to get rid of the trappings, that we felt were, were our best parts, but really were holding us down. And for us, I'd say that was mm-hmm. our building. This building that was built 60 years before, 40,000 square feet, six acres, right in the central part of town. And um, do we need this? Because mm-hmm. it's 80% of our budget. And if our primary source is people, we need to flip that percentage. So I tell you this part first because it had to happen this way. Yeah. Is we, we did this in this really way where we made a video about what life could be like. And then the whole time I had people who were sort of fighting this vision interrupt me and be like, no, you have to go f- fix the toilets, you can't build this, or no, you have to get in the young millennials, or no, and it was, we was this wonderful engagement with these people who were fighting against it, and we said, let's, let's make this funny video and do it this way, and then we showed it to the congregation, six months later, we sold the building, and what we did was especially weird economically, is I said, um, I want half. Half go lock in a, in a high return thing that we cannot unlock for seven years. I mean, protect it for myself, put all kinds of things on it and the other half i'm going to spend all of it in five years every single penny we're going to work in a deficit and we're going to invest that in vision and the vision is flipping that percentage from from stuff to people
0: and so when you said 80 percent was the budget flipping it the other way 80 percent of the budget was building and infrastructure you flipped to flip it over seven years
1: correct okay so two years in i hope i to say we flipped it that um, the synagogue has grown anywhere from ten to eighteen percent every year since we made the flip, and all uh, the money's grown by ten percent every single year. So I say that because it's nice to know where you are in the st- scarcity stats. Also, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that trusting in the universe and being very intentional about how vision works and how that works, and then buying, a, getting an investment from people, really made a difference. So this is where Peter comes back into my life. I mean, at this point, we've become friends. He's like, "Who is this weird little rabbi doing this stuff?" and um, he tells me never to call myself little. Okay. So I have to correct myself there. Um,
0: just weird, Rabbi. Just weird. Yeah.
1: Yes, just weird. And um, so then it came to how we were actually making our money. So we had sold our inheritance and we were able to flip, um, but still, still, we were still measuring ourselves by scarcity terms. Hmm. And what did growth look like? And how do we sort of sell that? And so, with Peter's great guidance, we talked about the wilderness metaphor i mean it belongs to the jewish people right yeah. and first and always other people too i guess uh, yeah, yeah. and um, so i explained how i grew up which was when i was a child you bought your ticket for high holidays for the holiest day of the year you bought a ticket, and you got an assigned seat. So if I paid $500, I'd get a middle seat. And if mm-hmm. I paid $1,000, I'd get a whatever seat. Of course, like the most expensive one in on the front, and no one wants the front one, so the most expensive ones become like the ones in the back. Oh, that's and, funny. And uh, that was like totally normal. <laughs> it was uh-huh. totally normal to buy yourself in, to buy your spot, to buy everything, part of it. And I just not high holidays, but at high holidays. And the holiest day of the year, I said, we're not buying our faith anymore. We're not going to do that. And we're going to trust in generosity. And I'm still going to tell you how much it costs. So i will be really transparent about that. But from now on, just give. And you're not going to get some email notice or an invoice. and I'm not going to block the door. I'm still going to do your funeral, even if you mm-hmm. don't pay your dues. Because we used to check the roster. Wow. Is Troy still on my roster? Does he belong to me? Because then I'll serve him. But if he didn't pay his bill, he doesn't belong to me, and I don't serve him anymore. Hmm. And it was a really different way of doing things. And so I'm sure for other faiths this is like really obvious. But yeah, for us no. it was a really different model. So a year ago a, a year ago, well now a year and a half ago, we flipped. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, all the good things came
0: true so far.
1: Um how it, would yeah. pe- how do
0: people in the congregation describe that flip? Like you know, a couple of <laughs> examples, like I
1: think there was a lot of fear of part of it. You know, if we tell them well, they don't have to do this when they're so used to doing it, and it seems so easy. I think outside of the Jewish faith, they're like, ah, I wish I could just send them one notice a year and they would just yeah. pay it and they, they felt mm-hmm. obligated in that way. So there's a lot of fear. If they don't have to do this, will they ever do it? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably not. Like, they were right yeah. about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, what we found is that everyone who's committed to paying something actually does. So we went from making some of the same money and sometimes a little bit more. But now we don't have to wonder, hey, Troy, you promised, but you're not doing it. Because before it was just a false pretense of who would pay and who would not. Um, So this short in the games, like a year and a half in, I think there's still fear about what happens next and how do you build and how are you supposed to even budget for the coming year and things like that. It's really hard, especially still you can't collect anything on any holy day. but I think that they like telling their friends, really, actually, we mean it when we say, "come as you are, uh-huh. and you're a part of us just by walking in the door. And being able to back that up, but there's no actually hidden strings to that. has been huge, I think, just for the psyche of the congregation and for the staff.
0: In his book, Community, the Structure of Belonging, Peter Block writes, commitment and accountability are forever paired. For they do not exist without each other. Accountability is the willingness to care for the well-being of the whole, while commitment is the willingness to make a promise with no expectation of return. He continues, the economist would say this smacks of altruism, and so be it. What community requires is a promise devoid of barter and not conditional on another's action. As we continue this conversation with Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, you'll notice the shift as we uh, make a connection between the financial costs of living in this abundant narrative rather than in one of scarcity.
1: I didn't like just suddenly wake up and say, this is going to work, let's do this, mm-hmm. free the people, free the seat. Yeah. I first came up with this plan and we went through the listening campaign and people were like, no. yeah, we don't. And I had come up with a tier structure. So okay. there was, like, an all-you-can-eat plan. Uh, I have young children plan. I'm single. I want to pay for the young kid plan. Like, all uh, those different yeah, kinds yeah. of things. And they were like, no, just, just like, let us be generous if we feel like it, and we'll figure it out. And I was like, okay. And I it, it came with a gamble. I had to yeah. gamble a couple of things. One was staff. So if I didn't make the money up. And they set a very – they set a bar for how much we needed to raise. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, guys, add $20,000 to that. No, add $30,000. I was like, Miriam, what are you doing? But I really, I wanted to like prove that the people would be naturally generous. Once they took away the tears, they were so right. Mm-hmm. But they had, like, I had the idea. And then they were like, no, like, go farther. And then I was like, oh, I will.
0: There we and, go. Um, the Elijah did, pouring water over the thing. Yeah, and it did. see it burn. Yeah. It did. It worked. <sighs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah be interesting to stay with your congregation for a second and Mm -hmm. go how has that affected uh, neighborliness who who are your congregation's neighbors Um, because you once were in a space and now you're in a space that you rent is that the relationship so that was
1: so that was in that I struggle with all this because my vision versus our vision Mm -hmm. what do I decide they decide or we decide and that, that's a very hard tension for me to walk and something that I've grown in. Um, but yeah, we rented an office space and it, we signed a five-year lease. And I said, in five years, we'll know if any of this worked. Yeah. We'll know. And then if it doesn't, like, you'll fire me. And like, I gamble. I mean, yeah. I was like, take my pension back. Like, you can have it back, guys, if it doesn't work. But let's just try. Like, the worst-case scenario is not that bad. Like, the worst scenario is a synagogue folds. Like, there's eight synagogues in Cincinnati. It'd be okay. (laughs) Um, And, like, once you sort of, like, name what the worst case was, it was much more doable. Um, The problem, I, I like, give quotations here, is that at two and a half years, we're maxed in the space. Uh. So the conversation's coming up faster. So the problem with abundance is, like, bam, I got to do something now. Yeah, Um,
0: you got to buy your way out of your lease to keep dreaming. Y- yeah, there's like there's oh, of, yeah, exactly sort of scenario, um,
1: yeah. right, and what my dream is very different than what their dream is, and so like where is the bridge between those two dreams? Um, so I think the neighborliness, like that's what I think is next. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I wanted at the beginning, I really wanted to go to Roselawn, which is historically Jewish area of town that we left during White Flight, mm-hmm. and is now a primarily African American area of town. But if you go down there, the synagogue, the houses have mezuzot, they have Jewish prayers on them that are painted over. The biggest church in the area was a JCC, a Jewish Community Center, and I want to go home. Like mm. I think that reconciliation is only possible if we go home. People aren't ready for that. Not yeah, yet.
0: That's a big leap, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I need a few more years to be ready for it. And So what's in between a reconciliation? Before we get... Before we become fully whole, like, what's the next step to wholeness? And I think that's what we're trying to figure out, like, what can be collaborative? Do we just extend the lease and buy the place next to us or whatever it is? But um, for me, growth needs to be um, sort of, I think, about, like, growing our web Mm -hmm. rather than our static space, if that makes sense. So, like how can I partner with more organizations in different parts of town rather than building a more, like a bigger obelisk in the middle of Mm. the white suburban Jewish area town? Does that make sense? So do I actually do better by partnering with multiple places where I have a presence in different places where we learn to be more neighborly in those spaces? Um, I will say that our demographic flipped during all this change, that all of a sudden um, we went from an average age of about 65 to an average age of 40. So that's a pretty big drop. That's a
0: huge one, yeah. Yeah,
1: so it's young, it's queer, it's diverse economically, socially, and um, that's created, it's also 90% interfaith where one partner is not Jewish.
0: That's 90% of the 90% couples.
1: 90% of the new people coming in. Yeah. So my religious school, I have to talk about Jesus and I have to talk about Christmas. And like my child in there, like, this, yeah, <laughs> like the yeah. rabbi's kid is like, okay, what's going on guys? And it, it, yeah. it's had, a ch- everything had to change. Once the money changed, everything changed. And um, that's harder for the older folk mm-hmm. and awesome for the older folk at the same time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When you think of uh, what we've been a part of building and watching kind of uh, develop with common good with work john's john's work with walter's work um and with peter's work uh, what would you want to talk about like what what is it that kind of resonates or that you might even push back at a little bit from your own experience
1: as a rabbi every time that walter speaks i'm like yeah 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 more 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 okay wait, wait how do i live that and he makes me look at my text really differently because Walter is just a total poet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then me as this sort of naturally aggressive person will like pull out my Bible, my Torah, and be like, where was that? Okay, Walter, where was that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's great because it's taught me, he has taught me to bring that, that discerning eye and um, that comfort and joy with text into the space in that way. I wish that... Um, we talked more about the feminine spirit in all of this. I know mm. it's cliche to have a woman say there should be more women, but um, the role, he talks so much about Moses, but Moses couldn't have done any of it without Povah and Shephra like delivering all these children into it. And we talk a lot about needing a singular leader, but Miriam is the one who found the well and the water. Like, you know, she's the one mm-hmm. who figured out how to sustain people in, in the process of getting there and we absolutely need promised land and we also absolutely need the courage of wilderness but we sometimes just need like the sustenance of the moment in the journey on the way to wilderness and so we i think we jump a lot uh-huh. from slavery to wilderness to promised land without thinking about what that walk was like mm. and that the fact is, that, you know, we always if we're always in Egypt, we're also always on the walk and we're always in the water and we're always in promised land. And we're always in all these different facets. And uh, who are the allies in that particular journey?
0: Well, would you mind sharing a little bit of that for you? Like for you right now, what mm-hmm. is the what is the walk like then?
1: I think it's my tension between what I want things to be like and what things are and where I actually fit in that of how much do I enter a space and how much do I hold to myself? And um, if it's congregational, I think mean, the big question for me is, does any of this mean anything? Is this any of this relevant in 20 years? Mm. And I worry, even as the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, that maybe it's not.
0: Relevant for what? Yeah, uh, like yeah.
1: for everything. For everything. Like, you do I it. need my traditional faith voice to be maintained the same way it has for the last 5,000 years? Mm-hmm. Do my kids still need to say and pray in the same language that uh, my grandfather paid, prayed when he was in Buchenwald concentration camp? Like, do those things need to stay the same mm-hmm. as I'm building the next world? And I think that my particular call, if that not either or, is just to worry about the next 10 years. Like, what does it mean to be on the cusp of what's next? And to, to be true to that cusp and not, not to not dream far but to know what I know is possible, which is the next 10 years, and that I have room to really be creative and open and risk a synagogue closing down because it's not the last synagogue. It's not the first one either.
0: Your voice of dissent in this would be to say, no, I think it's also important to go like, we're on a journey. We're discovering if the decision I make now will matter in 10 years. I can't claim that I just made the life changing decision and I'm moving over into Promised Land. And how do you think that, just from your own perspective, how would you advise other people, or not advise isn't even the word, but how would you explain that to others, invite them into that?
1: Right. I think that my natural, um, I'm not a competitive spirit, but whatever it is that keeps me on my toes is that as soon as I cross one finish line, I'm like, finish line is really 10 feet ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And I just kept, I keep moving what it means to succeed, what it means to accomplish, which is probably part of the scarcity thing or maybe I should be talking about it in therapy instead of on this couch, <laughs> whatever it is. But I think that um, that's part of it. It's like to honor the moments when you hit that, that finish line and then go, what's the next one, what's the next one, and understand that y- you come far and there's a lot of way to go and have that come together. Peter, I, I once, I had coffee with Peter about a year ago and I was really, I was really struggling. And I said, I just wish I could jump to, I just want to know what the outside of the cliff looks like. Like if I'm jumping from one cliff to the next, I want to know what the outline looks like. I don't need to know the whole solution. Uh-huh, I just uh-huh. need to know that it's like, there's another other side yep. and then I can jump. And he tells, he tells me this whole story. And at the end of it, he says, you already jumped. You're in the middle of the air. But
0: don't. That's big. Don't ask, don't act like you're still got to decide. You've already decided.
1: You're, yeah. And like, if you keep looking around and be like, when am I jumping? You're going to fall. Yeah, yeah. And like what's below you could be jagged rocks and rushing water Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: in faith language, it could be God's hands or in leadership language, it could be the next frontier. Uh Um, It could be everyone that's following with you. It could be all kinds of things. And we we always presume that what we're going to fall into is
0: something treacherous. Contemporary Buddhist teacher says, the bad news is I'm falling and there's nothing to hold on to. Mm. Um, The good news is there is no bottom. Mm-hmm. So it changes what the leap is. You're not leaping into mm-hmm. the next security. It's you're leaping from the net or the notion of security. Um, uh, it's what it sounds like you're yeah. saying. Yeah, and I think
1: that's very Walter-y of you in <laughs> that you never know what the systems of support are going to look like until you're in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's true for the leap too, not meaning that you should run out and quit your job right now. I think it's entrepreneurial work. We are taught that yeah. you're only serious if you do it all full time. And the fact is, no, you're only serious if you actually can hold down two jobs while you're doing your passion on the side and it's still your passion.
0: Yeah. And it's still yeah. giving you
1: life. And to sort of check yourself at that like, is this still life giving? Do I still love this? Is this That's still nice. something I need to do? And I still need a paycheck and like my kids still need to eat and like Disneyland is not a far thing. I want to like, I want to do these things. Yeah. Um, and how do I live all of them without crushing myself?
0: Mm hmm. That's good. It does. Yeah, it does. So you've been uh, around as we've been thinking who would be part of this uh, fellowship program or in the middle of a 12-week program with 30 fellows that are working on different experiments. From your perspective, uh, who's being drawn to this conversation and what you think is kind of possible as folks that are experimenting at the edges of leaving scarcity for abundance, if you will?
1: So I don't think that anything is really possible without allies in your journey I really don't I mean if you're going back to the metaphor of the exodus like you needed some sustenance for the rock like you needed it and then we grabbed some like gold on the way too to build what was next that's right and stolen or not owned or not whatever (laughs) it was you need that and I would think that as people are mid-leap because if they already got here Mm -hmm. that was already in them and and what we're offering them is wisdom Mm-hmm. wisdom from different generation and a different level of people and also these allies of people who get it and what I mean get it is the people in this world who, who love being both fringe and frontier mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and um, might see success in all the ways that scarcity sees success or sees Pharisees success but um, wants more than that and um, understands that we can't deliver it alone mm-hmm. and so I hope that one of the tools that they're walking away with except beyond these wonderful experiments of imagination is maybe one two or 30 people who are right there with you in the right ways and there for when for when you hit the hard points and maybe some jagged rocks along the way too
0: yeah it's perfect that's great well miriam and champ thanks so much thank you This has been the Common Good Podcast, conversations at the intersection of place, belonging, and remembering. You can learn more about the work of Marian Turlenchamp, as well as the uh, Common Good Reader and our fellowship at commongood.cc. Stay in touch. Next week, we'll be talking with Northern Ireland's Mary Kerrigan, who is an architect, activist, and urbanist, about her own work and intersection with the common good. Common Good is a collaborative production of The Hive, a center for contemplation, art and action, and Common Change, eliminating personal economic isolation. We're produced by myself, Troy Bronsink, and Joey Taylor. Music is written and produced by Jeff Gorman. And if you're tempted to think that, uh, that your community is one of scarcity, um, sometimes you just have to look a little bit deeper to find out uh, all the little hidden gems.
1: There's a raccoon that could get through our foundational cracks. <laughs> Whatever it is, but...